Good to see everybody. Let's open our Bibles this morning uh, to Isaiah chapter 17. Usually I'm setting records for how many cross-references we have on any given Sunday. And uh, this might be one of the only times that we have one cross-reference. So we might be setting a record here. But I'm going to add verse 14 to our text that Lane read this morning. So let's pick it up. Isaiah 17, verse 1, first verse and the last verse. The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. Now verse 14. Then behold at evening tide trouble, and behold in the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who plundered us and the lot of those who robbed us. Now, we've been making the point as we've been studying through Isaiah that in one chapter you can have historical aspects of Isaiah's time being fulfilled. Like in the year King Uzziah died, that was current to that time. Isaiah says he saw the Lord. But also, we've been making the point in the Old Testament, even in the Psalms, where David might be pouring his heart out to the Lord, for instance, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was David's heart at the time, but clearly it is what's called a messianic prophecy because it deals with what Jesus went through on the cross at Calvary. They cast lots for my garments, and my tongue clung to the rope of my mouth. That's all about Jesus. So my point is it can be happening as David is going through this, and then the Holy Spirit just takes it and has a double application. And such is the case this morning. Last week we were in chapter 16, very important chapter, because most of the chapter is about a judgment that happened to Moab in verse 14 of chapter 16. It says it's going to happen in three years, the judgment of Moab. But the first couple verses talks about Selah and Moab, but clearly it's a prophecy of where the remnant will flee after the abomination of desolation. So verses 1 through uh, 4 is yet future. And we showed you, and I took you to Petra last week, but from verses 6 to 14, it is clearly a local judgment that happened within a three-year period of time. Now, having said that, what we have here in chapter 17, this verse, one, is Damascus will cease from being a city. Let me just give you a little bit about the history of Damascus. One of the first places we hear about it is back in Genesis 5, where where, um, Abraham is sort of complaining, I have no heir, I have no kids. And he says in verse 2, and Abraham said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I don't have any children? All I have is Eliezer of Damascus. And here's one of the first references to the city of Damascus. Let's take a New Testament example. Here, Paul, before his conversion, while he's called Saul, is on the road to Damascus. He gets saved on the road to Damascus, and he's blinded for three days. The Lord healed him. As a brother came over, the Lord told him, go over to the house on Straight Street. You're going to find a guy there. He's blind. His name is Saul. He's a chosen vessel of mine. And it was there 
in Damascus that Paul received his eyesight once again. And his life was never, never the same. He never looked back. Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. And I emphasize continuously inhabited. They got a thing going on between Jericho and Damascus. Which one is older? They both claim to be the oldest. But Damascus has always been inhabited. In other words, this is a prophecy in verse 1 that has never, ever been fulfilled. Um, I will show you, I'm not taking anything for granted this morning. I do have some graphics. Um, I want to show you where Damascus is. So on our first uh, on screens this morning, I have a picture of the Middle East. And Damascus is pretty much right um, in the middle. And of course, Beirut, uh, the white part there, would be the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem, Amman. You can even see Baghdad. The president of, it's in the, the state of Syria. Damascus is the capital. And the president of Syria is Assad. And um, Assad is a Shiite. Now, Islam is, is divided up between the, the Shiites and the Sunni. Assad is Shiite. Iran is Shiite. ISIS, on the other hand, is Sunni. And as you, you look at this, even the name, Mary did a little research on this, and she came up with an interesting what the name actually means. The name Damascus means silent is the sackcloth weaver. Damascus will be destroyed in one night. The sackcloth representing humility or mourning, weavers usually loom all day, and at night the loom is silent. In one night, Damascus is going to be silenced. It seems that God has named Damascus with the end judgment in mind. And praying about how to go about a study with this prophecy as we watch um, what's happening in the Middle East right now, what I'd like to do is give you three possible scenarios of how this prophecy here, 2,700 years old, could literally be fulfilled, literally by the end of this week. That could happen. So what I'd like to do is present with you three different possible scenarios. Um, Jesus, in Matthew 24, when asked about the last days, he told us that there would be wars, and then there would be rumors of wars. Of course, the big biggest war is going to be uh, the battle of Armageddon when the nations gather together. But it's plural, wars and rumors of wars. Then he says something interesting in verse 7. And he says, nation will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. Well, the word there is ethnic group against ethnic group. And in the case of our study this morning, there's so much hatred between the Sunnis and the Shiites that uh, they have, um, well, it's developed into our first scenario that I'd like to look at this morning, and that is Damascus being destroyed by ISIS. So that's our first thing we're going to look at. Let me give you a little bit of the origin 
of ISIS. Everybody here, of course, is in the news all the time. Principally, uh, ISIS is a product of a genocide that continued unabated as the world stood back and watched as 200,000 Syrians were murdered and millions more displaced. ISIS, formerly Al-Qaeda, formed by the U.S. to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan in the early 90s, when Assad embraced Al-Qaeda to assist in his fight to stay in power. It came back to haunt him in ways he could not foresee. Facing Assad's army and intelligence services, Lebanon's Hezbollah, Iraq's Shiite militia, and Iran's Revolutionary Guards, Syria initially, peaceful Sunnis, protested quickly, became disenchanted, disillusioned, disenfranchised, and then they radicalized and became violently militant. When they sought international assistance, the world refused, so they embraced the pact with the devil. Al-Qaeda and ISIS was formed turning Al-Qaeda into a brutal, inhumane killing machine. ISIS um, desires a Sunni caliphate across the region. And we're watching as our tentacles are going all over the place. But that's basically how they came into power. And right now, Assad is sort of being propped up with Putin and Iran. The reason that he's still there is because boots are on the ground with Russia. And of course, the biggest terrorist country in the world is Iran, and they're propping him up right now. I leaned over and whispered in Judy's ear. I said, Sarah couldn't set set this study up any better than telling us a little bit about um, uh, what's happening in Europe and just how devastating it is. People really don't realize it, but ISIS has created the greatest humanitarian crisis in our lifetime. Can I say that again? Because I want it to sink in. ISIS has created the greatest humanitarian crisis in our lifetime. What's happening is, uh, and I'll put a chart up on, um, Sarah gave us some of the numbers, and uh, what you see here is an updated version. It shows where they are in Lebanon, over a million there in Jordan. Iraq has some, Turkey, and the amount um, as, as they flee their, their country, half the country's pre-war population, more than 11 million people, have been either killed or forced to leave their homes. Families are struggling to survive inside of Syria or make a new home in neighboring countries. Others are risking their lives on the way to Europe, hoping to find acceptance and opportunities. And the onset of harsh winter weather makes life as a refugee even more difficult. At times, the the effects of the conflicts can be seen overwhelming. And it overwhelmed Sarah when she saw this little girl sitting in the middle of the road, having nowhere to go. You know, and that's just one. And yet we're talking here something that hasn't really happened um, to such a degree as we have literally the gutting of an entire nation and it's laying in waste. Well, what is happening to Syrians caught in the war? 
Almost five years after it began, the full-blown civil war has killed over 220,000 people, half of whom almost five years after it began. The full-blown civil war, uh, I, I mean, bombings are destroying crowded cities and horrific human rights violations are widespread. Basic necessities like food and medical care are extremely rare. The UN has estimated that 6.6 million people have been uh, displaced. That's an incredible number. I mean, that's more than the number of people that died in the Holocaust in World War II. When you consider the refugees, more, more than half of the country's pre-war population of 23 million is the need for an urgent humanitarian assistance, whether they still remain in the country or maybe they've escaped across the borders to Europe, Germany, Denmark, wherever. Now, just this week, and it's not being reported, you have to search for this stuff. So I'll go on to Debka file or one of the sites that are actually keeping us up to date. Um, this next picture that I'm going to put up here is ISIS in a Syrian town where they killed 160 people out in the open, either by shooting them in the head or beheading them. Then they took 400 and they kidnapped them. Some of them they'll hold for ransom. And um, that's just what happened this week. And it's one of many stories I'm sure aren't even being told. ISIS could, and here's one of the possible scenarios. Remember um, that uh, ISIS wants to take out Assad. And um, um, I have a picture that we weren't able to get up on the screen, but the title goes, An Underground Road to Damascus. ISIS could tunnel into the heart of uh, Syria's capital to take fight uh, take the fight to Assad, uh, warn experts. Now, we know this is happening in Israel, right? We, we busted them. Uh, they All the way from Gaza, they've went into Israel with these very sophisticated uh, tunnels. And by the way, they're back doing it even, even now. So, scenario possibility number one. ISIS could cause Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1, to be fulfilled. Why? Because ISIS is Sunni, Assad is Shiite, and to establish this caliphate that they want to, they got to go. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. So it could happen that way. Another way that this could happen, as I'm going to have you turn now to our cross-reference in Psalm 83. <laughs> the craziest thing happened to me yesterday. Uh, Judy and I were talking about this going home from church last week, and she said, did you, ever, did you ever think of Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38, 38, 83? I said, no, never. I never thought of such a thing in my life. She says, you haven't. I said, no. So I got a fish tank, and it's, it really needed a cleaning. So I went to the pet store, and I got some charcoal and the filters, and I'm cleaning the thing up, and... and um, the thing is, I didn't have enough room for the charcoal, another pack of charcoal to clear out the water. And so I'm digging around the office. What can I stick back there? 
to give it some room so that water can flow more freely. So I only have two or three tapes in my, in my desk, and I pulled one out, and I thought, I know what I'll do. I'm just going to take this whole thing apart, rip all the tape out, and I'm going to stick it back there. The water will be able to flow, no problem. I thought I'd look at it first, and it said Psalm 83, verses 1 through 8, 2003. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? I had to listen to this thing. And the part, I couldn't listen to the whole thing because I was still studying. And um, I found out that what I taught then is what I'm teaching now, so I'm still on track. I didn't want to contradict myself. I thought I'd better listen to it. And then I says, you know, let's, the scenario of Ezekiel um, 38 could also play into this. And then I said, then you have Psalm 83. And then I said, there you have it. You have an 83 and you have a 38. You have a 38 and an 83. <laughs> So, as I said, I had never said that before. I repented and uh, made it right. <laughs> By the way, I did find something in my fish tank. It's just my fish are very happy right now. Psalm 83 also, I believe, has not yet been fulfilled. I will not be dogmatic on Psalm 83. There are good Bible teachers who say that it has. But I believe it's, and I'll call this, Possible scenario number two for the fulfillment of chapter 17, verse 1, of the destruction of Damascus. We read in verse 1, Do not keep silent, O God, do not hold your peace. And do not be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make a tumult. And those who hate you lift up their heads. They have taken crafty counsel against your people. They consult together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel will be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagarites, Gabal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them, and they have helped the children of Lot, Selah. Now I'm going to put up on the screen uh, the, the nations that I just mentioned. And they seem to be of one heart and one mind to accomplish one thing, and that is the annihilation of the nation of Israel. And this is, this is nothing new to us. I mean, um, the Ammons in Iran... Uh, we're the big Satan, Israel's the little Satan, and they have openly called for the destruction of Israel. And in order to establish this caliphate, Israel has got to go, period. And so what, what I'm going to give you here from the description of their fate alone, it's reasonable to conclude that the army, armies of Isaiah 17, verse 12, and we'll get to that in just a bit, are the same nations that signed a treaty against the Lord in Psalm 83, uh, 5 through 8. Below is a list of those nations and their modern geographical equivalents. So as we look at this list here, the Edomites would be Jordan and parts of the West Bank. The Ishmaelites are the Arab peoples. Moabites are Jordan and part of the West Bank. Hagarts are Jordan, the Arab people. The Gibelites, Lebanon, Ammonites, Jordan, 
the Amalekites, southern Israel and Gaza, and Philistia, Gaza, where Hezbollah's headquarters is today, along with Tyre, which is Lebanon, which is Hezbollah's headquarters. And just several years back, we had it all out with them, and it was pretty much a stalemate. I don't think Israel did their job. They could have. And then Assyria, today would be Syria, parts of Turkey and Iraq, and the descendants of Lot would be Jordan. Now, here they are. They have this scheme. We know the animosity. We actually had to cancel one of our trips to Israel because there was the Israeli army ready to go into Gaza. And um, that never happened. But because it was imminent, we had to cancel our trip. The only time in all the years we've gone that we had to cancel that particular trip. But there might be another incentive for them to come in and take out Israel besides their hatred. And that incentive is one of the largest oil discoveries in the world just within this last year. And what I'm going to put up on the screen next is it always, they told me it was on the the Golan. Well, I wanted to know where on the Golan. And um, the property is, the gas company is called um, Eric Oil and Gas. Their chief geologist told uh, a local news station, we are talking about a strata, which is 350 meters thick. And what is important is the thickness and the porosity. An average oil discovery of strata is 20 to 30 meters thick. So this is 10 times as large as that. So we're talking about a significant quantity of oil. The important thing is to know the oil is in the rock, and that's what we know for now. Three drillings have so far taken place in the southern Golan Heights, which have found large reserves of oil. And it's uh, cream of the crop type oil. It's the best of the best. Potential production is dramatic. Billions of barrels, which will easily provide all of Israel's oil need. Israel consumes 270,000 barrels of oil a day. And it's just sitting there. And on the map, it shows the... um, The box is actually the Sea of Galilee. So when you look at this, we're talking basically when we're in Israel, we point out where um, uh, the land of the Gadarenes is. And we have the bottom end of this is usually where we'll have our fish dinner at a kibbutz down there. And then you can see that it goes north. But it's huge. And um, let's just... hypothetically replay what happened with Lebanon, only this time imagine it coming from Syria. Let's say that ISIS does get involved or that Assad decides that he can take out um, um, Israel. Uh, Syria's rocket technology is far more advanced than that deployed by Hezbollah in Syria is known to possess chemical weapons, including the highly lethal uh, VX and sarin gas. 
If Syria miscalculates and attacks Israel with these weapons, the Israeli response will be swift and devastating. Israel is armed with nuclear weapons, and if its survival is put into question, it will not hesitate to use them. When I first started going to Israel, we would go to Masada, and they used to swear in the soldiers there. And they had this thing called the Masada Complex. Um, without getting into too much of the history of Masada, 900 um, Israelis, rather than become servants of Rome, decided to take their own life. And so they would take the soldiers up there and say, not again, not again. Not, not, we're not going to run from our enemies. So they're sworn in on Masada. To the state, they do that. It's been changed now to something that's called the Samson option. And let me explain what the Samson option is. The Samson option is the name that some military analysts and authors have given to Israel's deterrent strategy of massive retaliation with nuclear weapons as a last resort against a country whose military has destroyed much of Israel. Let's go back to chapter 17 and show, let me show you what this actually is literally saying here. As we go to verses 4, um, the destruction in 2 and 3 is about the forest will, will cease from Ephraim. Ephraim is always a reference Ephraim, of course, was a real person, and it was a real tribe, but it is primarily used as a reference to the northern part of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And in verse 3, it talks about part of Israel will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus. So something happens in northern Israel. Verse 4 and 5 says that, it's going to be so devastating, and that day it will come to pass that the glory of Jacob, now we're talking about Israel again, will wane, and the fatness of the flesh grow lean. It will be as when the harvester gathers the grain and, and, and reaps the heads with his arm. Uh, it shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephim, again in Israel. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three at the top, maybe at the most, four or five in its most beautiful branches. Something has happened. And, um, and that day man will look to his maker. So what we have here is evidently an attack that affects the northern cities of Israel. And if you take it, if Israel is hit, the result will be an immediate retaliation. And this indeed could be the catalyst that brings about the fulfillment of chapter 17, verse 1. Now, the result of the war, as you get down to verse 12, now the Lord is speaking. What, what's the, the final outcome of this war? It's speaking to the nations I believe from Psalm 83 and what happens to them. Woe to the multitudes of many people 
who make a noise like the roar of a sea. Not just Damascus, but the rushing of nations, plural. More than one nation, not just Syria. That make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the running of many waters, but God will rebuke them and will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like the rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, at evening time, trouble. And before the morning, he is no more. This is a portion of those who plundered us. The probability of Psalm 83 with nations and that being fulfilled is a very real possibility. Great thing about teaching through the Bible. You see things you've never seen before. I saw something this time that I found extremely interesting as I was studying for this. Um, I'm going to put up on the screen right now an overview of the nations of Psalm 83, but I'm gonna we you'll see that there's certain boundaries there. And after uh, the Six Day War and in, in 48, uh, Israel was victorious in their their conquest. And as a result, they gained territory. One of the territories was the Golan Heights. And they're arguing about it today. They call it the Occupied Territory. Well, it's the first time in history that I know of that when you win a war, that you have rights to the spoils. They want it to be different for, for Israel. Now, let's say this war takes place. Let's say Damascus is destroyed, along with these other nations. What you have here... And I'm just going to quote this. This is Genesis 15, verse 18. Because God made a promise to Abraham. He says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said unto him, Unto thy seed, I'm going to give you this land. Well, what, what what are the boundaries? From the river of Egypt, that would be the Nile, unto the great river Euphrates. That's never been taken. Israel's never taken that land. Is it possible as a result of this war that this promise that God made in Genesis to Abraham, it's got to be fulfilled, right? So we want to say amen? God promised it. Some people say, well, it's the, the dimensions during the millennial reign. Not necessarily, as you study it. And so what could be happening here is overnight, with uh, from from the Nile to the Euphrates, we're talking where where the wealth of the oil of the world is. Well, we they already have that, but when you overlay this, you have these countries now being defeated in one night. Damascus ceased to exist, and I think um, um, ISIS will be completely annihilated, and there will be this space of time between this war. And now Israel dwelling with new borders in a land of peace. And that's the difference between Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38. When you read Ezekiel 38, they're in a land that's living at peace with unwalled villages. And the nations are different. The nations in 83 are not the same nations in Ezekiel 38. So 
there is a, a prophecy of this battle against the Ammonites, which is about almost half of the, the boundaries in the book of Jeremiah. And I'm just going to quote one verse that could breed uh, credibility to this happening. Jeremiah 49 verse 2 says this, Then Israel shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord, after they defeat the Ammonites, which is a, a good portion of this. There's other judgments, but what I want to point out here is he said, you're going to take possession of your inheritance. In other words, it's yours. I gave it to you anyway. You just never took it. And um, so possible scenario number two would be the war from Psalm 83. It is overnight. It happens quickly. And it will never, ever be inhabited again. That's why we know this prophecy has never been fulfilled. Scenario number three, in my last one this morning, and that is a natural slow death of Damascus itself. The hollowing out of Syria's middle class is leaving behind a very dangerous vacuum. It's forcing Russia and Iran, by the way, the two main players in Ezekiel 38, to step up to bolster Assad's depleting ranks. I'm going to read a paragraph from an everyday 39-year-old woman before and after her country uh, was gutted and fell apart. Damascus, Syria. Until civil war broke out in 2011, Ayman, that's her name, enjoyed a comfortable life in Miza, the central of middle-class Damascus and a popular neighborhood neighborhood for Syrian government employees. The 39-year-old devoted herself to her two sons, never dreaming her family could ever slip out of the, com of the comfort of that. After all, that was a, a promise from Assad himself. Today, the endless grind of war has reduced Amman's life to a constant state of anxiety. She keeps her sons in hiding, afraid they'll be drafted by government hungry for soldiers, simply grabbed by militiamen who have been known to arbitrarily arrest innocent civilians, hold them for ransom, or even forget them, leaving them in detention. Her psychologist husband quit his practice because he makes better money being a taxicab driver. But then the war made the roads too deadly, and now he says he hasn't left the house in months. Iman, meanwhile, cleans houses for three bucks a day, not enough to buy food, and begs her casual employees to pay her utility bills. Looking at today's geopolitical landscape, it's not difficult to envision the scenario outlined in Isaiah 17 and Psalm 83. Syria has been adamant in its demand that Israel surrender the Golan Heights, even threatening war if Israel fails to comply. Meanwhile, the summer 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah has apparently convinced leaders in Damascus that Syria can be victorious 
in a conflict with Israel by simply overwhelming the tiny nation with rocket attacks. From a greater perspective, it has convinced the entire Islamic world that Israel isn't the military invincible nation that they once thought. Today, the most violent enemies of Israel reside in the very places named in Psalm 83, Hamas in Gaza, the Palestinians in the West Bank and Jordan, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and the Syrian leadership and its axis of evil partners in the city of Damascus. As of this writing, the conditions are ripe for the fulfillment of Isaiah 17 and Psalm 83, paving the way, and this is a good part, gang, paving the way for the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation. In light of such developments, we should zealously preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to anybody who will listen. Good time for an amen there. For the hour is late and the return of Christ is near. What we're reading is a prophecy 2,700 years old that could literally be fulfilled at any, at any given time. Jesus said, when these things, what, begin to happen? Is that what he said? And as we look around, everybody knows what's happening is already there. As he said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up, your redemption is coming nigh. So we want to be those, you know, we want to be those wise virgins. If we need to get shaken up a little bit, so be it. But again, I think the church should be the one giving the perspective. Not CNN, not Fox, but the church should be able to say, no, this is what's happening, and this is why it's happening. Amen? All right, we'll leave it at that for this morning. Let's stand, and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, exciting times, and yet we have such mixed emotions because we see the heartache and tragedy. We pause before we go any farther, Lord, and, and just pray for uh, human beings, uh, the, the casualties of the people of Syria. And uh, we hold them up to you and pray, Lord, that even as you led Sarah to a Christian house and get saved, I just pray you lead these refugees to people who will be able to share with them the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we simply make our way through the Bible, I find your timing with this study this morning so current and relevant in the times in which we live. And we, we don't see that as a coincidence, Lord. We believe that you're the one who guides and directs our steps. Bless your people this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.